ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our stellar guest is Jorge Arango, information architect, author, and educator, and we're going to talk about managing personal knowledge today. This episode is brought to you by UC San Diego. Thinking about diving into the dynamic world of UX design, but not sure where to start? Explore UC San Diego Extended Studies UX Design Certificate. Master essential skills to build a standout portfolio that will help you land your dream job. Enroll today in Principles of UX and get 10% off as our listener. Head over to discoverux.com ucsd.edu and use code discoverux to apply the discount. Hey, Jorge. Hey, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. We're absolutely delighted. Congrats on the new book. We hope that's doing well. Well, I'm very excited and I'm very excited to share some of the stuff from the book with you and your audience. So before we dive into the main topic, tell us more about your background story and your great IA deeds, including the Polar Bear book together with Lou Rosenfeld that we had recently and how you've came about. Well, I am an information architect. I have been doing that kind of work for a long time, but I didn't start my career there. I'm originally an architect and by architect, I mean the design of buildings, right? So I studied architecture. What happened to me is that shortly after I graduated from architecture school, the web happened. And when I saw the web, I had a revelation that this was going to be a technology that transformed the world. And I basically pivoted in my career and started designing websites back then. And long story short, I focused on information architecture, which has to do with how you organize, structure, and label information so that people can find it and understand it more easily. And that translates to designing things like navigation and labeling systems for websites and apps. And as you might imagine, it also has applicability when managing information of other types, including the sort of information that we manage for ourselves. So these days, the main thing you do is consulting. So what kind of consulting work do you do for your clients and who are they? I work as a consultant primarily either directly with clients or working in partnership with design agencies. And the work usually happens in two distinct areas. One area is product design. So that's the case where we're designing the user interface for a product that users will be interacting with to accomplish some task. And the other bucket is marketing, right? So that would be things like websites where we are designing the ways by which people can find information in a website, right? Whether it's in navigation bars or filtering and search systems, stuff like that. And over the last few years, my work has mostly focused on helping technology companies And a large number of them have been in cybersecurity. And that hasn't necessarily been through my efforts at reaching out to those folks. It just has happened that many of the projects have been in that space. And it's a fascinating space. How is that possibly related to the matter of managing personal knowledge? And what made you so excited 
that you reached out to Lou and offered to write a book about it. That is just like a completely separate story, isn't it? You might think that that's the case when hearing the story told the way that I've been telling it. But if you think back to the the statement I made initially about what information architecture is, you know, organizing, structuring, and labeling stuff so that it can be found and understood, that's something that applies to the design of a product or a website. But it also applies to how you organize information for yourself. So what's happened over the last, what, 30 years or so, if you want to start counting around the time when the internet really took off, is that many of our interactions in the world have gravitated to digital spaces, right? And and Mark Andreessen in 2011 had that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he said that software was eating the world. So more and more of our interactions are happening in digital spaces and more and more of our information that we manage for ourselves, our knowledge, is being captured in our smartphones, our computers. And what's happening, I think, to a lot of people is that they are feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling like, I like this phrase in English, I can't even. You know, it's like, have you seen this? Like when people go, I can't even, you know, it's like, I can't cope anymore, right? I'm dealing with this inbox with all these emails and I'm dealing with, you know, stuff coming through the social media. And then, and then you know, there's all this stuff to watch on the streaming services. And a lot of people still like to read books, right? And there's more opportunities to do that. And all of it comes down to, this is all information that you are exposed to. And the key question is, how do you make sense of this stuff so that it helps you live a better life? Whatever that means to you, right? Whether it's doing your work better or you're someone who wants to learn something, you know, you might be a student either formally or informally, or maybe you're somebody who wants to write or produce something for others to learn. And all of these things require that we have a healthy relationship with information. And I feel that one of the side effects of software eating the world is that many of us have fallen into these patterns where we don't have healthy relationships with information. And what I'm hoping to do with Duly Noted is help readers who find themselves in this situation get a greater degree of agency over their relationship with information and knowledge. What does that mean in practical sense? Like, how does a human look like when they are managing personal knowledge well? What practices do they do that a typical mere mortal doesn't? I'll tell you how it's played out for me. And I put myself out there as a fairly typical user or a fairly typical uh, uh, person who might benefit from this. So I, I like to read. I like to read books. I learn through books, right? So there are some people who learn better through lectures and stuff like that. I, I, I'm one of these people who reads, learns through reading. And what's happened to me is that I used to read a lot of books and have a very hard time remembering where I had read what, right? So there's all these ideas that come into my mind as a result of reading all these books. And I'd have a hard time, A, recalling exactly what the idea was, and B, remembering the source, like where where I read that. And I would come across related ideas, but it would happen kind of arbitrarily. 
And it felt at a time in my life that I was reading books and kind of going through the motion of it, where I'm reading this thing, getting these ideas, but I'm not retaining them in a way that was particularly useful to me. And now that I have a system in place to do this, I have greater confidence that if I read something that matters to me, I have a place where I can capture it and I can refer back to it. And I can find it later when needed. And I can connect it to either other ideas that might be related to it or other sources of similar ideas, right? So it's not all in my head. And it might be worth unpacking what I mean by my head, because when I say head, I very explicitly mean, you know, three or so pounds of gray matter at the top of my body, <laughs> right? Which I think of as different from my mind, because my mind extends beyond the meat computer somehow, right? These tools that I'm using and writing about in the book extend my mind. They become a part of my mind and I do my thinking in these things. It's not just happening in the wetware up here. We're really yearning for an example here or a couple. I'll give you an example that perhaps some folks listening in might be able to relate to. You might have had the experience of sitting down to try to work out a problem or think about something and drawing a mind map or writing an outline, right? So I think a lot of people listening in might have heard of mind maps, but if they haven't, when you draw a mind map, what you do is you start with a clean sheet of paper, you write down a central idea, and then you think about ideas that relate to that and start connecting them, right? And it kind of branches out into this large diagram. And what ends up happening is that the piece of paper in that case becomes a way for you to make tangible these ideas that are otherwise kind of abstract and vague in your mind. Just the mere action of putting them down on paper triggers other ideas. You know, you, you see the thing on the paper and you go, oh yeah, that reminds me of this other thing. And you start taking down notes. What is happening at that point, and I think that this is a common misunderstanding. I think a lot of people think that when you're taking notes, you are writing down your thought processes, things that have occurred to you in your, in your brain, right? You're just using the pen to write them down. What actually is happening is that the thinking is happening between the brain and the piece of paper and the room in which you're sitting. Somehow your hand moving across the page is serving as a part of your thinking apparatus right? And if you've ever had a breakthrough either at a whiteboard or, like I said, drawing a mind map, I think you will be able to relate to that. It's a different way of thinking than just you know, keeping it in your brain. Specifically, that means using research tools, knowledge management tools. And let's call out some famous ones, Rome Research, Obsidian. What else am I missing out? What's your favorite? Got it. All right. So now we're getting specifically into a particular type of note-taking, right? There's a book that was published by, I think it's, it's a two waves book, but it's part of the Rosenfeld Media publishing group, right? Called Figure It Out by um, Steven Anderson and Carl Fast. And this is a book about this idea that I've been describing about how we think with the world, right? It's not just our brains thinking. And people have been doing that for a long time, as Steven and, and Carl point out. I'm bringing them up because they have an example in the book that I think is very powerful that has to do with counting money when you have like a pile of coins on a table, right? 
if you see a pile of coins of different denominations, you can try to add up in your mind how much money there is on the table. But if you can move the coins around and put them into groups, you're going to be able to do that activity much more quickly, right? If you, you know, rather than have them scattered, you can like group them, you'll, you'll be able to, to make that calculation much faster. And that sort of thinking with the environment is something that people have done for a long time. We've gone through things like the invention of writing that lets you put down ideas on paper so that they have some permanence and can be consulted by others. That has been happening for a long time, right? People have been taking notes to augment their thinking basically for millennia. What's been happening, though, is that the technologies available for us to do this have been getting better, cheaper, lighter, faster, et cetera, right? So th there was a time when people took notes using wax tablets, right? So there was wax, you know, wax surface, and they would inscribe with a, a stylus and put down their thoughts. And then if you wanted to basically clean the slate, you had to basically melt the wax or, or get, the, get the surface smooth again, right? And you can imagine how a moving to paper would be an improvement over that system. And moreover, if you can mass produce paper, you know, rather than have it be a, a, something expensive, all of a sudden it's much more available. And your thinking changes, you know, when technologies get better, when thinking technologies get better, faster, cheaper, lighter, et cetera. And what's happened to us, and we'll circle back to the, the technologies you were talking about earlier. What's happened to us is that we've gone from this world where information used to be stored and managed in physical form, you know, things like books, paper books, and LP, you know, vinyl LP records for music, right? That's how information used to get sold, packaged, stored, managed, archived, right? And we've gone to this world where information is digital, which changes our relationship with with information. It changes the volume, it changes the speed, it changes the reproducibility. And we've gone from having thinking tools that were appropriate to the world where information was stored physically. We've now gone to this, this world where we can have thinking tools that are native to digital systems. And they are different. They enable different ways of thinking. I'm saying this and it's sounding it's all sounding very abstract in my mind so I'm going to try to be concrete okay if you use a, a note taking tool like Apple Notes the, the you know the note taking tool that comes with all the iPhones right I suspect that that's a note taking tool that a lot of people use I use it myself for some things and that's a tool that at least in its initial versions was meant to replicate stay as close as possible to a paper notebook where the idea was that if you have an idea you start a new note, and it's kind of like a blank sheet of paper, and then you write down your thoughts on this thing. Maybe you want to go buy some groceries, so you write down a list of the things. You sit down with the phone, and you write down, you know, I need to get milk, I need to get apples, I need to get chicken, or whatever, right? You make this list. And when you're doing that, what that app is doing on the phone is it's serving the same purpose that a notepad would use for you, right? It's allowing you to capture these thoughts so that you can have a list that you can then pull out when you're actually at the grocery store and can do something about it, where you can actually buy the stuff. That's one way of taking notes. That's one way of augmenting your mind. But it's not that different. What you're doing with Apple Notes is not that different from what you did when you were writing down on a notepad. 
Now, with computers, we can do things that go well beyond what something like Apple Notes can do, right? And one of the things that you can do with computers is you don't have to keep all of the related ideas together in one notebook or one piece of paper. You can have them spread out in different places and connect them through hyperlinks, much like we do on the web, right? And all of a sudden, what that allows you to do is it allows individual ideas to be able to come up in different contexts. And that's a very powerful capability. And it's a capability that was possible in paper-based, you know, physical media-based systems, but it really is truly feasible when you're working digitally. And what's happened over the last, I would say, five years or so is that there have uh, started to appear in the market tools that are widely available, relatively easy to use, that allow anyone to start thinking in this way so that you can take these more powerful connected notes. Now let's maybe give our listeners a brief primer on how these tools that you recommend operate. Like, What are the conceptual ideas that are so special that typical classic note taker wouldn't do. Yeah, I have three ideas that I talk about in the book or three three principles that I think are are different. And I'm going to tell you what they are, but before I do I'll, I'll I'll use as a way of contrasting that how notes used to be taken, right? Like the native way of taking notes when using paper notebooks. And the way that I talk about this is by talking about how I used to take notes when I was a, a child in school. I used to take notes in class using loose-leaf binders. I had these, these three-ring binders. They were called trapper keepers, mead trapper keepers, right? And they were these plastic binders. And what would happen is I'd be sitting in class and the teacher would be talking and I would take out, a, you know, I would have a sheet of paper on this binder and I would write down what the teacher was saying, kind of in the order that they were saying it. And at the end of the semester, I would have basically a book that I had written in this, in this binder of the sequence of classes that the teacher had taken, that had lectures that the teacher had given, right? So they were in chronological order. So here's the first class, here's the second class. And then everything related to that lecture was in that particular sheet, right? You can think of them as being fairly linear notes. Even though in a binder, you can pull out a sheet and move it to a different section, I never really did that. I had, you know, the binders were organized by different courses, different classes, different subjects, and then chronologically by the, the order in which the lectures were given. I suspect that that's how a lot of people take notes, right? So if, um, you know, if you work at a company where you keep meeting minutes, and I've done this in the past as well, you have a notebook where you write down what happened in this particular meeting, and then you'll turn the, the sheet over, and in the next sheet, you'll write, you know, the meeting minutes for the next meeting, and it'll be linear. And the way that you have to work when you work with these uh, new types of note-taking tools is based on three principles. The first principle is that rather than these long linear notes that try to capture everything about the subject or the class or whatever, you take short notes. So you're, you're going to be making short notes. Rather than thinking, of, I'm going to capture everything about this lecture, you're listening for the different ideas that come up in the lecture, and maybe you take down a placeholder. But those different ideas are going to be notes on their own. So you, you might have one single note that lists all of the ideas that came up, 
But each one of those ideas might have its own notes. So there'll be shorter notes, but they're going to be, there's going to be more of them. So all of a sudden, you're, rather than capturing one long linear thing, you're training yourself to capture these smaller things. And then you come to the second principle, which is you connect your notes, right? So you have short notes and you connect them in such a way that they follow some kind of sequence or some kind of logical structure, right? So in, in the case of the lecture that you're listening to, it might be that the ideas get presented in a particular sequence and there's one note that captures that sequence, but those labels are linking to other notes that kind of pinch and zoom into each one of those ideas. Is that making sense? I feel like it's it's being a little abstract. It'd be easier to show, but... Uh... <laughs> definitely making sense, but definitely comes with an overhead of having to structure them. Mm. And also another objection is that the common sense in me has is that having them spatially laid out on your sheet of paper in the lecture makes it like a holistic picture of the lecture. And then when you try to break them apart, that part of the sense might be lost in that division moment. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great segue actually into the third point. I said there were three points, right? So the first one is make short notes. The second one is connect mm -hmm. your notes. Yep. And the, but you can't lose sight of the third one, which is you need to nurture your notes. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is your note, let's call it a notebook, but it's not really a notebook, right? It's a, this, this digital thing that you keep, this, this knowledge repository. In the book, I call it a knowledge garden because I like the, the garden metaphor. It's a living thing, right? So you're going to nurture it. And what nurturing means is, again, I'll, I'll talk about in contrast with my classes when I was a kid. I would take, you know, I would write down what the teacher was saying in class And maybe I'd revisit those notes when I was studying for the exam, but that was it, right? Like I would never see those notes again. In fact, at the end of the year, I think like my mom tossed them. I, I, I don't know what happened to those binders, right? I had no use for them. They were done, right? And I think that a lot of people, you know, that's their relationship with, with notes. And if you're going to get value out of the system, you cannot do that. You actually have to circle back and you have to do the connecting of these things and, and zooming between the kind of tree level and the forest level, right? Like, you know, this expression is like, you, I, you're not seeing the forest for the trees. When you're talking about the context that, you know, the, the kind of big high level, big picture of how these ideas relate to each other, you're talking about the forest level. And you're only going to get real value out of this if you are constantly um, recontextualizing these ideas and thinking about how they fit into these various contexts, including the context in which you originally found it. I'll give you an example. I talked earlier about how I used to be an ineffective reader. Now, when I read a book, at the end of the, you know, after, when I'm done reading the book, I will wait a little while to digest the ideas, but then I will sit down with the book and with the notes that I took, you know, I, I read using Kindle, so I highlight and I take notes in line in the, in the book itself. I sit down with those notes that I took while I was reading it, and I just write a new note in my system about the book. I, I, I write this note, you know, I title it with the title of the book, and I just write my reflections about what I learned while reading this book and the ideas that I found there. And then I can think about how those ideas might connect to other things I might have read in other books, right? 
And some of those ideas might be important enough, universal enough for me to create a new note in my system that will then be connected to that book and the other sources where I found related ideas, right? So I'm building this little kind of ecosystem of ideas. Thank you for walking us through the process with a book. That definitely helps us. What other means of working with information do you use on a daily basis that our listeners could borrow? For example, you've mentioned that you're using Apple Notes for certain input tasks, I imagine, or maybe something like that. For example, I very often fire Apple Notes just because Notion takes ages to open up on mobile. So maybe you have similar patterns in your behavior. Absolutely. So one important distinction that we should call out is that the, the type of system that I'm talking about here isn't uh, a good fit for all types of notes, right? So, And this is one of the challenges about writing about note-taking is that the word notes, we use the word notes to describe lots of different things that, are, that have very different purposes. The types of notes that I've been talking about here so far are what researcher Andy Matusha calls evergreen notes, which are the type of notes that you will find value or suspect you might find value in the future. So you want to capture them for the long term, right? If I read a book about some subject that I'm trying to learn about for work, I, you know, I'm likely going to want to refer back to those ideas in the future. So I, you know, those go into my system. There are other notes, though, that are, that are not meant to stick around. I mentioned the example of going grocery shopping. You know, if, if, if I need to write down the things that I need to buy this week for my groceries, I'm not really going to have a use for that note, you know, once I've actually gone grocery shopping. And that's a kind of transient type of note in, in distinction to these more evergreen notes. I will use Apple Notes for that, right? Apple Notes is great for, for example, if, if I have to write one of these transient lists that I need to share with my wife, she uses an iPhone too, and I can easily share that list with her, right? So that's a use case for which Apple Notes is the right tool and something like Obsidian is not the right tool, right? I also use a tool called Drafts. And Drafts is an app. It's, a, it's an, an app. I think it's only in the Apple ecosystem. I don't believe it exists for Android, but there might be similar things for Android. And what Drafts does is, as the name suggests, it's a place for you to keep your temporary thinking. So, for example, I send out a newsletter. And in the newsletter, I include links to, to things that I've read that I thought were you know, worthwhile sharing. And I capture those links in drafts, right? I don't, uh, I don't keep that kind of stuff in Obsidian because... Obsidian for me is for long-term storage, for long-term storage of these evergreen notes that I know I'm going to circle back and capture. It's not appropriate for things that are going to be transient, that I'm going to you know, basically get rid of next week when I send out my newsletter or you know, when I've gone grocery shopping. We don't have too much time left, but I'd love to hear your take on how to best write down meeting notes when you obviously don't have time or resource to write down everything in real time, nor it would make sense to make it legible. Do you write those yourself? Do you think AI can replace us there? And yeah, we're barely scratching the surface of AI, but meeting notes, what's the best way to convey the essence? I was going to say AI is a big subject. Uh, 
And yeah, we're not going to be able to do that justice. But meeting notes are one of the biggest uses I have for my system. And I, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but I use primarily Obsidian, which is a, a note-taking tool, a connected note-taking tool. And that one is available in several different platforms. So it's, it's, and, uh, and you can try it for free. It's, it's free for personal use. And capturing meeting notes in Obsidian has been one of the most transformational uses of notes for me. I apply the same principles that I've been describing here to the, the way that I capture ideas from meetings. And the way that I do it there is I have notes for each meeting. But the people, the participants of the meetings, uh, there are also notes in the system, right? And if I, let's say that you and I had a meeting together, I would start a new note and I would title it with the date and what the meeting was about. And then I would say, and who is in the meeting? And I would say, Jane Portman, Jane Portman is in the meeting. And I would make Jane Portman a link to a new note and it would be a note dedicated just to you, okay? And if you and I had a second meeting, I would, you know, in a different date, I would then uh, write that down and I would say participants, Jane Portman, and make that a link. And what Obsidian does is I can later come back and I open the note that says, the note for Jane Portman, and it shows me what, what it calls backlinks. So all the notes that are pointing to that note and what that essentially does is it gives me a list of all the meetings that I've been in with you, which, as you might imagine, it, it, that comes in very handy, particularly for someone like myself, a consultant who works in a lot of different projects, because I, not, I not only have notes for each person I meet with, I also have notes for each project so that I can see all the meetings related to that project. I can, you know, I, I, when I do research, I take notes in the system and I can see all of the notes I've taken related to that project. And then I can connect all of these things and they end up being this knowledge graph. Now, I do want to touch very quickly on AI. There are all sorts of developments in the space where there are startups and uh, more established companies like Google that are working on extracting insights from your notes and connecting your notes to each other. And one of the great advantages of working in this way, and it's an advantage that might not be realized in the near term, but it surely will be realized in the midterm, is that if you do what I'm saying, where you make short notes, you connect them, and you nurture them, eventually you're going to end up with a repository that you're going to be able to point AIs to and basically find, help find patterns and insights for you in your, in your own thinking and in the things that you have read in the meetings that you've been in, in the thoughts you've had. So it's, it's an assistant, and, and Google released a, a product, it's called, uh, I think it's called Notebook LM, that is currently in beta, that, that does this, right? Like you, you point it to your Google Docs, and it lets you ask the AI questions about the stuff that you've been researching. Well, everyone can do this, but you have to start by taking down your ideas. It's not just about accepting what the AI tells you is the right answer. This is about you capturing your thoughts, your ideas, and then having the AI help you, help you find patterns, jog you into coming up with new ideas. And I think we're, it's an incredibly promising area, one that I'm very excited about. 
And it relies on you being disciplined about thinking with things, and in particular, thinking with these digital systems. It's been an amazing introduction into the world of uh, knowledge management. Obviously, we haven't covered everything. So anyone who wants to learn more can get your new book if you tell us where they can find it online. Well, the the best place to connect with me, and, and you'll find the book there, is my website, which is jarango.com. So my first initial and my last name.com. The book is also available wherever fine books are sold, as they say. So you'll be able to get it in Amazon and all those things. But I would uh, highly recommend that you get it from Rosenfeld Media. They have a wonderful website and you know you can get the ebook or paper version of the book there. If people want to read more of other things from you, is it still your website or maybe social media? The website is the best place. Social media has become really fragmented. I'm using Mastodon and you can find me there. And, but you can find all the links to my social stuff on my website. So if you want to keep track of me, that's the best place. Also for those who listen to podcasts, you host your own. That is related to information architecture. Tell us more about that. That's correct. I have a podcast. It's called The Informed Life. And in The Informed Life, I interview people to find out how they organize information to get things done. So you'll find there a bunch of interviews with people talking about this way of thinking and this way of working, where you're very explicitly setting out to use technology to augment your mind. And you'll also find interviews with people who architect information for a living. So people who do content modeling and research. And I feel like my work is at the intersection between user experience design and what is being called kind of the tools for thought space, where you know people are finding ways of using technology to amplify their thinking. That's where my passion is. And I think that the podcast reflects that. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Wishing you a great rest of the week. It's been a great pleasure, Jane. Thank you.